HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are live on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, today we're talking to Danielle Nirenberg. Danielle is the um, president of Food Tank and an expert on sustainable agriculture and food issues. Danielle has authored or contributed to several major reports and books, including Happier Meals, Rethinking the Global Meat Industry, State of the World, 2011 Innovations that Nourish the Planet, uh, Eating Planet 2012, Food and Agriculture, the Future of Sustainability, and Food Tank by the Numbers Family Farming Report. Welcome to the show, Danielle. Um, thanks for coming on. You're, this is your maiden voyage on this particular program, isn't it? <laughs> It is. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. Well, thanks so very much for not canceling today since I know you're under the weather. I really appreciate it. No, no problem at all. Thanks again. So um, since you are a newbie to this program, why don't you tell us a little bit about Food Tank? What is it and what are your goals? So Food Tank is a fairly new organization. We're about to turn two years old. And the mission really behind it is to cultivate individuals, organizations, and original research and content to push for food system change. We really try to bridge both domestic and global food issues and show whether it's, you know, hunger and poverty in Sub-Saharan Africa or obesity in the United States, they're really part of the, the same issue and the same problem, a, a food system that's broken and that's really focused on, on calories rather than really nourishing people. And so what we try to do is really highlight stories of hope and success in the food system and inspire eaters and businesses and policymakers to really, really change the food system and, and make sure that you know it's fixed that it's not broken cool so you have a su- your first annual summit for food tank is coming up on january 21st and 22nd in washington dc and this is in partnership with george washington university is that right it is kathleen merrigan's office of sustainability 
and Food Tank have partnered to bring together 75-plus speakers over two days to really hash out what, what the, the future of, of the food system can look like and really, again, highlight those stories of hope and success. Fantastic. And so um, I'm just going to run through some of the topics that you guys are going to address, and and let's talk about some of them more than others. But um, uh, starting with cultivating better urban food systems, what do you mean by that? Do you mean like urban gardening, or are you talking about uh, getting food into food deserts, or what's, what's that about? Yeah, it's about all those things. How can we make uh, cities not only centers of food production, but how, you know, also how we can help people access uh, safe, affordable, and and justly uh, grown and prepared food. So we're really excited that Mary Che, uh, who's a member of the D.C. Council, uh, the city council will be speaking and and giving the keynote. Um, My good friend and uh, someone who's been a good mentor to me, Dennis Dimmick, who's one of the editors at National Mm -hmm. Geographic, will be moderating. So we're really excited to have farmers and researchers and policymakers all on that panel talking about, you know, how to make uh, food systems better in urban areas. You know, there are one billion urban farmers worldwide, and uh, a lot of them are, are doing it as a hobby, but millions more are really doing it out of necessity because they they need better access to, to affordable food, and the only way to do that in some places is to grow it yourself. Wow. And so that's, I'm saying, I'm considering that those other millions plus are not necessarily in the United States. I mean, I've been following the urban farming movement here pretty closely, and it's certainly nothing like those numbers. So where is that happening the most, do you think? Is that in, like, sub-Saharan countries? Yeah. and? It, it, it's it's really all over. It's Latin America. It's Asia. It's sub-Saharan Africa. You know, I've, I've had um, the opportunity to visit um, uh, Nairobi, and one of the largest slums in the world there is called Kibera. And anywhere from 700,000 to a million people live there. And everywhere you look, people are growing food in empty lots, in, in you know, uh, containers, uh, mm-hmm. on, on the tops of their, their roofs. You know, they're really growing as much food as they can because uh, they don't always have access to it. And, and it's, it's since 2007 and 2008, when the food and financial crisis began, never really went away. Food prices re- really still remain high for a lot of people. So they have to grow their own food to, mm-hmm. to get the, the nutrients they need. Right. Well, those staples uh, still, I mean, even though corn has come down in price, I think all of the other ones uh, have stayed pretty close to the numbers that they shot up to during that crisis. Um, yeah. And it's some people are paying as much as 80% of their total income on food, you know, yeah. and for comparison, in the United States, we're paying anywhere from like 7 to 10% or lower. Right. And so, you know, that's a huge chunk of your money going just for, for food and, and not considering any other necessities. Right, right. Crazy. So next up is uh, food waste. Uh, I've had Dana Gunders on this program uh, at least once, if not twice, nice. talking about, yeah, I do a lot of stuff with the NRGC. Um, and uh, so I understand from her that we waste over 40% percent of the food that's grown in the United States. And actually, last week I had a guy on who has a brand new composting system called Four Solutions where they can compost in five days. Um, so I'm all about the food waste, food composting thing. Tell me about what who's going to be speaking on your food waste panel and what's your goal there? 
We have some great people. Ben Simon, who uh, was just named uh, one of Forbes 30 Under 30 Social Entrepreneurs, he uh, founded as the director of the Food Recovery Network, which works with universities and colleges across the country to collect food that would otherwise be wasted and distribute it to those in need. They have, uh, you know, for the food scraps and the things that cannot be, you know, eaten because they've gone bad or, or whatever, they also uh, have are establishing composting systems at universities so that they can be used for school gardens. Right. But, you know, composting is sort of the, the last resort, right? So we're we're talking to folks like Jean Busby at USDA, uh, Patricia Benecki at the United Nations Environmental Program, um, and, and folks from the Food Marketing Institute to really prevent that waste before it happens so that, you, you know, it doesn't just – compost is very valuable and it's sure. a great way to use food scraps, but we want to make sure that the the, the labor and the resources, the water, the soil, the, the inputs that go into growing food don't go to waste and, okay. and make sure that, you know, either consumers um, are better educated about use-by and sell-by dates, which I'm sure you've talked to NRDC yeah. a lot about, but also that farmers have the infrastructure they need to preserve their crops so that they don't rot or get eaten by vermin or are susceptible to, to mold or pests and, and disease. So it's, it's, it's a whole range of things that really need to happen. I'm really excited to have uh, uh, such a diverse set of speakers on that panel. You have, you know, sort of the international side. You have uh, folks like Mike Curtin from D.C. Central Kitchen who will talk about what they do to, you know, get food and, uh, and, and serve it to their clientele. Um, so I think it's going to be really interesting. It's one of the, the panels I'm most excited about. Oh, is that right? Well, I look forward to it. I'm really interested in that concept, and I and I do think that the idea that we raise uh, all of this food and then put 40% of it into landfill is pretty discouraging. But a lot of that also has to do with educating the consumer, Danielle, don't you think? Because, I mean, for instance, when you're a, a, a produce grower, whether it's fruit or vegetables, if your fruit doesn't look perfect, you can't send it into a market. I mean, and the French have adopted a system of, in some places, of, of using ugly fruit and selling it. And when are we going to start doing something like that? Is that part of the discussion you know, there? It's funny because I think a lot of farmers markets here in the United States have been good about marketing that ugly fruit concept. If you talk to organic farmers of fruits and vegetables, often their produce looks a little little funky. And, it they, does. you know, I know a lot of farmers have been very good about, you know, it tastes just the same and offering samples to consumers. Intermarche, which is the, the grocery store you're talking about in France, mm-hmm. has really taken on this issue in a big way. They offer these ugly fruits and vegetables at a lower price. They're right. educating the consumer. Um, but a, a lot of it, I mean, I think we have all sort of been duped. We, we, we've lost our culinary skills, so we don't really know what proper portion sizes are anymore. So we, we overcook food or, you know, we, mm-hmm. we cook too much of it. We don't trust our senses. We look at those expiration and sell by and use by dates, again, you know that those don't mean a lot and they can vary from store to store and state to state. We've forgotten to trust ourselves. Like if it looks bad or smells bad or is a little bit slimy, probably you shouldn't eat it. But, you know, if it if it looks okay and smells okay and then tastes okay, you're probably going to be fine. Right. You know, so <laughs> folks just need to sort of trust in themselves again. And I think that takes relearning, you know, culinary skills, cooking skills. We've lost all these home ec pro- programs yes. in, in high schools. I think we just need to sort of relearn some of the skills that have been lost. Um, 
And, you know, I wish the Cooking Channel and the Food Network would take on this issue, too, because so many people are watching food as sort of a spectator sport. And if we could use those forums to really teach people about really practical things, I think we'd we'd make some headway. Well, I think, I mean, as an aside, I think the Cooking Channel was an attempt to go back to that earlier format of Food Network actually being a teacher. But um, I'm not sure how successful that is. But you've really you've hit a button that I, I touch on a lot, which is. The fact that people have lost the ability to cook for themselves or recognize that cooking for a family, uh, if you can just even allocate a couple of hours a week, you can go a long way towards making meals uh, really easy and quite cheap um, and not have to stress out about food or buy food from outside, you know, prepared foods from outside sources, which is, of course, the source of much of our dietary illnesses, right? I mean, obesity, extra salt, extra sugar, that all comes in foods that have been prepared for you. So, um, you know, in a way, when we talk about, I'm just going to go off on a tangent here, but in a way, when we talk about the broken food system, um, which, by the way, is a a phrase I'm coming to really detest, but um, I recognize that there are problems with it. I don't think it's broken. I think that it just is doing what we no longer want. But when it started out, like in the 50s and 60s, when Mm -hmm, all of this mm -hmm. got rolling after the war uh, and women were not so much in the kitchen, you know, we wanted those convenience foods. We asked for cheap food. Um, We asked for all of these things. We got them, and now we're pissed off because we're fat and unhealthy. Well, I think that... I think the answer is, you know, largely what you said, which is to bring culinary skills, home ec skills, and shop skills back into the high school education. Um, I think that making a premium on, uh, you know, making fruits and vegetables more available to everybody who needs them at a a price point that is affordable, you know, all of those things are part of it. But I think it's unfair to uh, cast uh, the food system as it exists in this, uh, you know, in this sort of villainous light uh, when all they have done is... Uh, make money for their shareholders and deliver us the food that we wanted, which was cheap, fast, and convenient. End of my story now. <laughs> Sorry about that. But you know what I mean? Like, don't you get, don't you feel like it's time to talk about real solutions and engage with them as opposed to like having, cause like Absolutely. one of the, one of Absolutely. the things you talk about here, the family farmers creating resilience in the food system. And like, I love the idea of family farmers and actually most like agricultural livestock ag producers are family farms still. Um, but, uh, you know, their, their access to, the consolidation of the industry, the livestock industry anyway, has been a real impediment to them. So do you Absolutely. see when you talk about family farmers building resilience, what are you what are you actually saying there? What does that mean? I, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, we've ignored the family farm. There are 500 million family farms, small and large, around the world. They're producing mm-hmm. more than half of the world's food, nearly 60%. There's a lot of opportunity for them to regain control of the food system. I'm sure you've talked to many farmers who, you know, uh, started off, you know, their their grandparents were small family farmers, but as, as the years passed, they got into contract situations, sure. you know, either through, through you know, uh, the livestock industry or, um, or you know, yeah. or some of these other big, you know, conglomerates. And the only way that they could get loans and insurance for their farms was to be part of those systems. And I think, you know, they're, they're not a lot, you know, if you talk to a lot of these farmers, they're not happy doing what they're doing, yes. but they don't have a choice. And what we need to do for family farmers is give them the choice that they had before and, and, and take away some of the impediments that have forced them into these systems that they're not, you know, they, they don't even consider it farming. Right. And I think, you know, the farm bill made a small 
small uh, push for that uh, with giving, uh, you know, more assistance to, uh, you know, small and medium-sized vegetable growers and fruit growers. Mm -hmm. But we need to go a much longer way so that farmers don't feel trapped, whether they live in Malawi or they live in Iowa. We need to make sure that farmers are, you know, have the resources that they need and and that all the money, you know, again, whether it's in Africa or the United States, doesn't go to to the big consolidated farms, whether they're family farms or not. We need more investment in these small and medium-scale growers who are trying to do the right thing but are often forced into systems that they didn't want and didn't agree with. Yes, I would agree. But I think that, that there the story is is how do you uh, how do you aggregate uh, their, pro- their product? How do you uh, pack it and ship it and distribute it? I mean, that to me, and that's, that's absolutely, the thing that I and see absolutely, is the big And that's why block. food hubs that are springing up at, all along the Northeast are so important. Mm-hmm. Hopefully they'll spring up in, in other areas. You know, the, the growth of, of, of farmers, unions, and cooperatives and, and, you know, advocacy groups for young farmers especially, I think, can help change a lot of this. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen overnight, though. And we need more policymakers who are interested in, 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 in these small and medium-scale growers in Congress and in parliaments and, you know, in boardrooms all over the world. Yes, I agree. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to argue with that, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does come down to policy, though, doesn't it? I mean, it really does, because until... So much um, of it, yeah. yeah. until government on either the state, local, or federal level gets behind this idea, um, I don't think we're going to see a lot of change. And, and that's, well, in our second half of this program, we're going to talk about lobbying for a minute um, but I want to I want to just quickly keep going through these um, through these uh, these issues that you guys are because you really did a great job of like corralling what I see as the big you know the big kahunas uh, when it comes to changing the food system um, then you have the story of food um, I'm assuming that's just food writers I know you have some it's great not just people. Food writers, but food communicators, and you know people who are like Frank Sesno of Planet Forward at, at George Washington University. They're using video. They're using you know social media. They're they're really trying to teach students how to tell the stories of farmers and and the land and the landscape in different ways. And I uh-huh. think that's so important. We've you know we don't. We talk a lot about, you know, as farming populations age worldwide, the average age of farmers across the world is 58.3 years of age. Uh You know, we also need to to grow other other, uh, careers in agriculture, and I think an important part of that is is the storytelling. It's people like Roger Thoreau who traveled throughout Africa and really talked to farmers and, and tried to understand, you know, their daily lives and communicate that through his books. It's it's uh, you know uh, people like Vicky Robin who are incredible storytellers. Eric Hoffner from Orion Magazine, which is this is what he does. He writes about the food system. So I know. Really He's my main out, man. <laughs> right? And then, you know, we, we put a policy person on this panel who's a former classmate of mine from Tufts University, actually, who works uh, in, in, with the Baltimore City uh, mayor. And, and really, how can what do policymakers need to hear and how can they communicate what they're doing better too? So it's, it's communication on a, a lot of different levels. And I think it's, it's important because, you know, as you mentioned before, we, we really need to reach the people who are making these decisions in their kitchens and at their dinner tables each day. And yeah. how do we do that? It, we have to, you know, have a cohesive story about why, you know, cooking, uh, you know, for your family is important, why buying from farmer's markets, 
markets is important. And if we don't have that story together, then we're not going to make the change that we need to see. Right. Um, You're not saying that you think that everyone is going to end up buying from farmers markets, though, right? No, and I don't even think that's practical or necessary. But I think what we need to get is people thinking about where their food comes from again Mm -hmm. and making decisions based on that sort of transparency that's out there that, you know, they know how it was produced, they know where it came from, they know what it supports. And whether that's farmer's markets or your local co-op or Whole Foods or your Safeway or whatever, just having the information you need to make better buying choices. Right, right. I think that's true. Now, the business of food. Um, You have one of my friends on there, Brad Nelson, who I met when I went to Australia last uh, summer. Nice. (laughs) I I think he's just one of the smartest people I've ever met, hands down. I mean, just love the guy. I agree. And he is... Vice President of Culinary for Marriott Hotel Corporation. So tell us about that panel, the business of food. What what do you think Brad and his ilk will be talking about? What are they saying? I think Brad uh, will discuss sort of the, the limitations that big hotel chains like Marriott and others really have. But the work that they're trying to do is so important. You know, Brad was on the forefront of pushing for more sustainable seafood options at Marriott and and really pushing for, you know, things in in the 1990s before this was on on anyone's radar. So the the, the power of business in in this world and the world of food is really, um, you know, it it can be a big force. And I think, you know, um, Brad, because he's he's sort of... uh, you know, more conservative than a lot of other folks on that panel will have a lot to say. But I think, you know, where he's on the same page is this need for for businesses, both small and large, to, to make better decisions and, and to push for sustainability in whatever way they can. It's not always going to be practical for some of these large corporations, right. but when they can do the right thing, you know, I think, and, and you know, I, I hope Brad would agree with me, that that's their responsibility. They, they, they need to be doing that, pushing for more sustainability, because that will trickle down, you know, to some of the smaller businesses. And, I, you know, again, when you're, you have such a large clientele, there's a real opportunity for education and communication and i think marriott has done a great job at that and it's a great way to differentiate yourself from other uh people who share your market uh if you're a hotel chain and you're offering sustainably raised uh you know whatever um or you know marine fisheries uh stewardship council approved fish or something like that that's a way of differentiating yourself from the marketplace absolutely and the other thing i want to say is like uh, you know this i mean to me the institutional buyers are the ones that we really want to target in terms of really moving the system because um because they have the buying power. And so a few weeks ago when the Urban Food School Food Dis- um, Coalition came together and those five or six big school districts said they're not going to buy chicken that has been raised with prophylactic antibiotics, that was uh-huh. a big issue for the Poultry Council. You know what I mean? The Chicken Council kind of didn't, you know, they were like, wow, that's huge. And you're basing right, this on absolutely. what? You're basing this on a study from Harvard that just came out, which I'm going to send you, actually, Danielle. You should read it. Um, Fantastic. Um, recognizing workers in the food system. This is a big topic right now with um, the wonderful work uh, that just came out um, about the Immokalee food workers. Of course, I'm blanking yeah, on the food name. Chains. Food chains. Food, Thank food you. Chains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a great, a great documentary. But I think there's been a lot more um, sort of. Uh, 
recognition of just what these people are contributing, right? And then, so what are the issues you're going to talk about there? Will that be like immigration, wages, social justice? Absolutely. And, and talking about the range of workers in the food system, it's mm-hmm. not just farm laborers and farm mm-hmm. workers, it's restaurant workers. Right. And, and you know, a lot of the, the, the people who are working in packing plants and distributing food, they, you know, they need to be recognized as well for, you know, the, the sacrifices they're making, the low wages that they're getting, and the unfairness that they get, whether it's, you know, because they're undocumented or, um, you know, n- not able to, to essentially feed their families. These are the people who are serving and growing and preparing the food that we eat each day, and they can't afford enough to eat. So well, I'm I mean, really getting that. at those issues. Yeah. I mean, I love that we subsidize McDonald's by, you know... <laughs> <laughs> by giving, you know, by paying their uh, workers benefits in this form of Medicare and food stamps. I, I think that's just amazing. Crazy. Talk about it's a scam, crazy. right? I mean, outrageous. Okay, moving on. Pushing for better agricultural research and policy. Boy, have you hit a nerve with me. This is one of my favorite topics. Can't wait for this panel. Um, I think that uh, agricultural research is so corrupted by corporate gifting that it basically uh, might as well just not exist. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's been co-opted by, uh, you know, some of the biggest agriculture companies in the world. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do get get back is public interest research, interest that is in the research of the public and in the interest of farmers. And I think what will come out of this panel is, is a lot of different things. One, the need for more participatory research practices that really involve farmers from the very beginning. Yeah. Instead of, you know, researchers and aid agencies going into to communities and telling them what to do or what they should do, and, 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 and instead just asking them what they need. What kind of agriculture do they want? Working with farmers from the very beginning and and farmers groups and getting at the nitty-gritty of what these communities really need. And I think, you know, having Jerry Glover from USAID, who also worked at the Land Institute, his work on perennial crops and really working with farmers who are developing these perennial crops, you know, in in Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia is going to be really exciting to hear about. We have, you know, a great lineup, including one of um, Food Tank's board members, Nabi Hakazi from Humanitas Global and the Community for Zero Hunger who, you know, this is what she does. She's, you know, every week she's in Vietnam or Mexico really talking with policymakers and farmers and researchers and getting at at sort of the crux of what people need to do their jobs better. What do these farmers need? And and I think, you know, having this group of folks sort of debating this issue will be really interesting. Now, are you going to be including uh, sort of climate issues and how um, how agriculture is going to be changing over the next few decades as the planet warms continues to warm up? Is that part of this, or is it really absolutely, more just like... Absolutely. Jerry will be discussing some of that in his in his remarks. Also, the family farmers uh, panel will be talking a, a lot about that. We decided not to have a panel exclusively on, on climate change because we think so many of these issues encompass that anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, it's sort of the overarching, this is what we're all thinking about all the time. So I think it'll come up in, in several different point, uh, yeah. panels. Great, great. Um, we're going to, let's see, we're pushing for international agreements. That's uh, global trade agreements. What, what are we, what's wrong with what we do now? What I kind mean, of agreements so are you <laughs> looking for? <laughs> you know, the, the, this panel specifically will focus on 
this new international uh, charter called the Milan Protocol. Mm-hmm. And what, one of the things that it calls for is the end of food price speculation, the fact that we're, we're treating food as a commodity and not a human right. So you're going to take, uh, sorry, but you're going to take corn, rice, soy, et cetera, off of the commodities exchange market? Is that what you're thinking? I, you know, I, I'll look forward to hearing what these panelists yeah, I mean, think I think that be would be done, good, but I think... But- <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot that can be done. And, and, and again, you know, treating food, food, need, food is a human right. And I, I hope these panelists will really, you know, sort of debate that issue and, and not talk about it in terms of just dollars and cents, but really getting at, you know, if we can end food price speculation, you know, as, as the special, the former UN special rapporteur on the right to food, uh, Olivier de Schuter, talked about during his his tenure as the rapporteur, we could really solve a lot of the problems. We, we could, you know, make sure farmers are getting fair prices. You know, that we could, uh, you know, right. end hunger. We could end this up and down of food prices that's taking place in, in the developing world and really solve a lot of the issues that are, are, are most urgent right now, for especially for the, for, for the poor in developing countries. Absolutely. I mean, just thinking about, weren't there riots for the about the prices of rice in the Middle East and, Absolutely. and a few I mean, years ago, was, I mean, it was because of the start, commodity market. Right. It was the start of the Arab Spring. I mean, what yeah. happened in Tunisia was over food prices, and that spread all across the Middle East. So, you know, looking at a lot of these issues, it's not only about solving the issue at hand, but it's about sort of the, the side effects. It's the conflict that erupts. It's the environmental degradation that results. It's, it's all of these other things. So if we can get the you know to the crux of some of these problems, we'll be, you know, there will be all these benefits that we can't even understand right now, but, you know, there'll, there'll be these side effects that really benefit farmers and eaters and businesses and policymakers. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so next, um, I'm sorry to rush you through this, but we do only have 45 no, minutes. No, no. So. <laughs> um, I know, and I'm talking a lot. <laughs> no, no, it's good. I, I want you to. I mean, I, I'm talking too much, so I, I'm glad that you're able to, like, just talk right over me. Do that. Please do it. Um, true cost <laughs> of accounting in the food system. Another good hot-button issue for me, which is to demonstrate the externalized costs of raising so much corn, for example, right? So it's like... Absolutely. We're, we're not counting the externalities of, of the kind of food that we're, we're producing right now. We're not counting, you know, the public health uh, problems and costs. We're not counting the environmental costs. We're not right. counting the, the impact on workers and animals. You know, there, there's so much that's not seen at the, at the price we pay at the checkout counter at the grocery store. And I think, you know, having this group of scientists and business people and, and advocates is going to be really, really interesting. Uh, Patrick Holden from the Sustainable Food Trust in, in the United Kingdom is coming all this way just to be on this panel. And he's wow. been such a leader um, uh, on this issue. So really having him there is, is a coup for me. He's one of my many her- her- heroes in, in this movement. I think he'll have a lot to say. Well, I really appreciate you inviting all these groovy people so that I can then invite them on my radio program. And then I look cool, too. Awesome. So- <laughs> but also, I mean, I did just- my job then. That's, my job. <laughs> That's right. Um, but to speak to the true cost of accounting, I just want to remind listeners that um, for for example, right now Des Moines, Iowa is uh, you know struggling with terrible water quality issues, as did Toledo, Ohio earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and this is what we're talking about because we're talking about the runoff, the industrial runoff, either from industry or from ag, that is causing these giant algae blooms, these dead zones and so forth, including the giant dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, which has been uh, explored on this program uh, several times in the past. So I won't go further, but that's what we're talking about here when we talk about the true cost accounting. Absolutely. It's like these people... Absolutely. And we're also pay. talking about obesity and diabetes and heart disease oh, yeah, right. and all That's of the stuff. other things that come from this 
you know, really messed up food system. There's a lot that can change. There's a lot that can be done. But we're we're really, you know, we, we need to get this accounting right so that we mm-hmm. can get the pricing right. Yes. And so people really understand what they're buying. Absolutely. Okay, so last but not least is dec- document, uh, sorry, democratizing innovation. What does that mean? I didn't even understand what so that was. So this is something that we recently um, got a grant for from uh, the McKnight Foundation. And the idea is to explore how innovation happens, how it's replicated, how it's scaled out and not necessarily scaled up, and how farmers, again, we're getting back to the the participatory side of this, how can farmers and researchers and aid agencies and governments all be talking to one another from the very beginning to to, to determine what are the best innovations, not necessarily technologies, but the things that are going to help improve communities and give them access to markets or, you know, help them build better infrastructure, help them find the right crops that are appropriate to their particular needs, their, their, their climate, their environment. Um, and it's, it's a really big, broad topic, but one that I think, you know, this is what food tank does. We try to spread information. We try to spread it to, you know, a range of, of stakeholders, whether it's regular eaters like you and me, policymakers, businesses, the funding and donor communities. So really just exploring how the the use of, of information can spread these innovations, you know, not just from north to south, but also south to south, having communities talk to one another. You know, I, I spend a lot of time on the ground, as I think you know, and, you know, you'll see uh, a great innovation happening in one community, whether it's rainwater harvesting or, you know, growing different indigenous crops. And just a few miles down the road, another community is really suffering because they're, they don't know about what, what this other community is doing. And so how can you increase, you know, the spread of information, whether it's through information and communication technologies like the Internet and cell phones and cell phone apps, or, you know, having better communication among farmers groups so they're meeting face-to-face. There's so many different components of this. Mm. So I think it'll be really interesting. It'll be an interesting conversation, especially with someone like Steve Brescia from Groundswell International, whose organization is working in seven different countries. And this is what they do, too. They, they try to help farmers find the best sort of agroecological solutions that are most appropriate for their communities and for their lifestyles and, and, and for what, you know, they, they need. In, in you know in that particular village or 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 city, so I think um, it should be a, a great conversation. I'm really honored that um, Jill from Stone Barns uh, can can come and participate. Uh, Jessica Rosen from Forum for the Future is going to be a great um, uh, contribution to the panel because she's working on uh, with a range of stakeholders from businesses to farmers to really hash some of this stuff out. So I think um, it, it should be really fun. Oh, it sounds absolutely great. Okay, so now, Jack, we can take a sponsor drop. Sorry, Danny, but we have to take a little sponsor drop here um, and celebrate Tabard Inn. And uh, we'll be right back with Danielle Nirenberg from Food Tank to talk more about uh, the issues that are going to be coming up at her Food Summit, January 21-22 in D.C. Stay tuned. I Today's break song is called Lazy L.A. by Odetta Hartman.
following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and on the phone with me is Danielle Nirenberg, the president of Food Tank, um, which is hosting its first annual summit uh, coming up January 21-22 in Washington, D.C. Um, Danielle, so let's talk a little bit about engaging with industry, because after all, these are the guys who currently run the system. And one of the things that um, over the last six years that I've been doing this program, or some variation thereof, um, I find that there is this tremendous polarization and and it's not just because you know people on sort of quote unquote our side don't like these people on their side but they also see our uh efforts to change the food system as deeply threatening and actually i think that is the source of a lot of um sort of the polarity that i see when i'm talking to both industry group you know industry groups and advocacy sure. groups and 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 i i think that you know you're you especially at food tank are kind of in a position to be addressing some of that and i wondered uh if you have uh, made any uh outreach or initiatives to big industry leaders to talk about what you see as kind of the the, the you know top five issues of how to address the stuff that's giving them all the bad press. I mean, you know. Yeah, like- absolutely, absolutely. I mean, um, the the advantage of Food Tank is that we we're seen as non biased and kind of agnostic in this space. We're obviously environmentalists. We're pushing for you know things that protect the environment in terms of agriculture practices. But I've worked very hard over the course of my career to maintain this this agnosticism, if you will. And that's why, you know, I can sort of flip between different um, groups. You know, I can show up at the World Food Prize in Des Moines, Iowa, and then, you know, attend a food sovereignty conference, you know, somewhere else. And I, I'm, um, you know, sort of seen as someone who, you know, thinks about these things in a, in a kind of fair, unbiased way. Um, you know, and, and I do, if we ignore, a couple of things, if we ignore industry, then we're never going to make the change that we need to see in the food system. I mean, that's just, you know, it's, it's the truth. And I've had the opportunity to engage and, or be on, um, you know, uh, boards or advisory boards for a couple of different, um, uh, companies, including the Unilever global advisory council for their sustainable living plan. Uh And, um, you know, I think, you know, Unilever is one of the biggest companies in the world, right? They're making consumer products. They're making food products. It's a real opportunity for nonprofits to have an influence. And, and we do, there are only, uh, six members on this global advisory council. We're all, you know, environmentalists from all over the world. And we we can make a real change. We, we get the opportunity to talk to, you know, Paul Pullman, the CEO. We get an opportunity to talk to the people who are on the ground working, you know, on on uh, palm oil issues with Unilever uh-huh. and really press them for for what they're doing and, 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 and get the answers that, you know, are going to, again, make change and make change for farmers. I was brought on because uh, of my you know, belief that if we're not talking to small farmers and medium-scale farmers, then none of these these 
changes that businesses are trying to implement are, are going to take hold. We really need to be working from the very beginning with, with small and medium-scale farmers to, to make sure that they get the resources that they need. So I, I think if you're not engaging with business, then, then it's all for naught. And it's, it's just like if you're not engaging with policymakers and the research and, and development communities, and if you're not engaging with farmers groups, then none of this is going to work. Yeah. So we, we have to be talking to everyone. We just do. Um, and, you know, for a long time I was, you know, very resistant to engaging with business and engaging with industry. But, the, the you know, the, the older I grow and the, the more you sort of see how the, the, the conversation around food is changing, it's just it's, you have to, to to make any change. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you have to take money from them. But you, you do have to engage with them. Yeah, I'm I'm right behind you honey i mean i've been i've been saying that all along it's like if you can't play with the big boys then you're not playing i mean right, it right, really is that simple absolutely so let's go on and talk for a second about the economics of fixing the quote unquote broken system changing the system requires massive uh differences in uh financial allocations whether they are from the industry in the form of revamping their current production models or their infrastructure or from consumers who might have to pay more for better food so how do you sell that program to either industry or consumers, because that's a key part of this. I mean, on the consumer side, you know, it's, it's very simple and very controversial for me to say, but yeah, food is going to be more expensive, and that means all of us need higher wages. We need to raise, you know, the minimum wage to a, 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 a wage that people wage. can actually live on so that they can buy <clears throat> that, you know, farmers can sell at a higher price. I mean, that's the reality for me. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk, you know, especially from the Obama administration and, and some of the big corporations about the need for public-private partnerships. I'm not necessarily opposed to, to, to these arrangements where, you know, whether it's Monsanto or Syngenta are, are working to, you know, increase infrastructure in, in developing nations. But we need some better strategies. You don't want just the Monsantos or just the Syngentas part of these, these public-private partnerships. You need more sustainable businesses, smaller and medium-scale businesses to be engaging on that level, too. And I think, you know, a lot of the focus has, has been, you know, through um, the World Economic Forum and, and, and other sort of um, high-level international uh, uh, organizations has been, you know, let, let's focus on the big industries and let's uh-huh. get them working with farmers. We need better, we need a better system to get uh, smaller, more sustainable companies engaged on that level, and, and we haven't done a good job with that. Right. And and then, you know, what you were talking about before, the, the industry has such influence in Congress and in other governments that we need to get the lobbyists out of this. And I don't know how that's done. It's not like I have the answers to this, but we need to figure out a way where this corporate influence is is not as big as it is right now because it's it's messing things up and it and it's not allowing the 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 change that we need to see happen. And and I, I don't know again, I don't have the answer, but we we need to figure something out that allows you know, more open, transparent discourse so that we know who's funding things and yeah. we know where the money is coming from. Yeah. Well, I also think that um, some of these trade organizations and, and um, <clears throat> I've unfortunately made myself quite unpopular in the uh, livestock ag uh, community by these opinions. But at one point I was like you, I could flip back and forth between the two and everybody loved me and it was all good. But now, um, you know, not so much. But anyway, um, 
that doesn't mean that they don't still talk to me. Um, it just means that um, I've come to think that um, organizations like the National Cattlemen's Beef Association or the sure. Pork Producers Council, um, that they are not serving, and this is a little bit different from direct lobbying, but somehow, and maybe you can help me figure this out, there is something that they, they are not educating their constituents about the options, I don't think. Right. I think Absolutely. that there is a real bottleneck Absolutely. of information. <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I totally agree. We um, Food Tank worked on a publication over the summer uh, in collaboration with the Boston Foundation. To uh, it, It's a, basically a, a short report to give to funders and donors, foundations, investors on the need for investing in, in, in smaller and medium-scale livestock production because so many of them don't understand the risks. That are involved, right. but you know, and I, I think you know, if, if the National Cattlemen's would read that kind of publication, or if their members could, they would realize that there are other options out there, ones that are are economically sustainable um, for their members, but you know, don't have the same sort of environmental and, and and social welfare costs. So I think you know, absolutely, they're not they're not doing a good job at ed- educating their members about what here here's another way to do it, or here's several other ways to do it. It doesn't mean that all big livestock production is going to go away, although I would probably like it to go away. But like, it, it does mean that, that the, these members of these associations have, have better options, that they can make the decisions. Because right now, there's only one decision for them to make, because that's all they know. Well, it's and it's also all that they're, well, for instance, talk again about livestock, which is a particular interest of mine. <clears throat> the, the, the business is so consolidated now that <clears throat> unless they play ball with the big guys, they literally can't get their animals to slaughter and they can't get right. them distributed. Absolutely. And so that, I mean, to Absolutely. me, that's like the crucial issue for um, changing the livestock paradigm. Uh, and, and, you know, even though uh, the big companies are starting to p- pay more attention to and even to change some of their protocols, like, for example, um, uh, last summer when Tyson announced they would no longer be injecting antibiotics into their um, sure. eggs, um, you know, that was a huge huge concession on their part. And according to them, it took them 12 years to get to it. Now, the, the National Chicken Council, uh, you know, again, citing this Harvard uh, research paper, um, you know, says that really everybody who's worried about antibiotics in the food system has their undies in a bundle over basically a non-issue, which I found <laughs> astonishing. Um, but... <clears throat> uh, <laughs> I know, it's just laughable, isn't it? I mean, it was laughable, just like, it was but... like, I'm like, and so I said to the guy who wrote back to me, you know, from the Harvard study, I said, so you're saying that the World Health Organization, uh, you know, the National Antimicrobial Research, you know, system, the, you know, CDC, Consumers Union, these guys are all like chasing the wrong problem. I mean, really? No response, as you might imagine. Anyway, yeah, but I'm we sure. are going to have, I am going to have somebody from that, uh, from that report come on and then maybe get, and maybe get somebody from National Chicken Council because they were the ones who put me onto it. Anyway, just to quickly, we only have like two or three minutes left and I, I just want to get to one more thing. And that again is about sort of economics. Um, we uh, produce, we are one of the biggest uh, food producing systems in this, <clears throat> in the world. And so um, what, what, what are we learning from other – oh, no. You know what? Let's scratch that question. I want to ask you this. When you think of a – because we do have to wrap it up. When you think of a successful food system, what does that look like? And and be specific and concrete. I don't want to know about, like, um, you know, food justice or, like, abstract concepts or not. I, I want concrete answers to, you know, how we solve this thing step by step. What are your top five answers to that? 
or top I mean, five, I, I don't know if I have a top five, but points. I think looking at agriculture as part of a landscape and not looking at it as a separate industry mm-hmm. is, the, is the only way and the best way to, to, to make change. You know, agriculture doesn't, you know, just happen over here or over there. Right. It happens among all of us, and we're all part of it. We're all part of the food system. And if we can think about it in that sort of more holistic way, I think we can make a big effort to, to change things. I don't have, you know, my top five. I think you know, there's no one country, no one village, no one city right. that does this all right. But there are components. There's a recipe here. And, it, it, you know, it's recognizing the importance of family farmers. It's recognizing that we need more youth in, in, uh, in, involved in, in all aspects of farming and, and agriculture, not just the production part. It's, it's realizing the importance of women in the food system and, and understanding that they're producing nearly half of the world's food, and yet they don't have the same resources as male farmers, whether they live, again, in something in Africa or the United States, they're discriminated. They're discriminated in in, in in all over the world. So there's a lot of, of components and in, in, of this recipe for a better food system. You know, it's recognizing the waste and finding ways to prevent it. But mm-hmm. you know, no one country is doing it right, um, unfortunately. But I, I think the, the components are all there. We just need to to put them in the in the right order in the right sequence. Before I go, I also want to mention to your listeners that. The, the, the Food Tank Summit is sold out uh, um, both days, but we will be having a reception and dinner at uh, Farmers, Fishers, Bakers, Joe Yonan, the food and dining editor at the Washington Post, will be speaking along with a chef and activist, uh, Jose Andre. So I, I hope Yay. anyone who happens to be in the area could, could come down and, and, and celebrate with us. It'll be a Food Tank's birthday party. Oh, great. And also, just uh, to remind listeners that you, I think, will be streaming this. Is that right? You'll be yes, streaming the they conference can, they so can people find can tune it in. on foodtank.com. Yes. Yeah. So they can find the link to the live stream on foodtank.com. We'll be streaming both days. We'll be showing videos in between sessions. So there will be a lot of rich content for people to be watching. Absolutely. Well, it sounds fantastic. I'm so glad I'm going to be able to join you. I'm looking forward to meeting you. You're a most impressive person. And uh, I wish you the greatest success, and I hope you feel better soon, honey. Thank <laughs> you. I'll see you next week. Okay, take, take care. care, Danielle. Thank you again. And thanks to my sponsor, Tabardin, for sponsoring my program today. Thanks to Jack for engineering, as always. See you next week, folks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.